Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. So we're in the midst of our, our series on spiritual discernment. When you study the Gospels, one of the things that Jesus does more than anything else is he takes people who are blind and he gives them sight. That physical miracle is actually <laughs> telling us that we are spiritually blind and he's the one who comes to give us spiritual sightedness. So today we're going to look at one of his teachings. And it comes out of uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And I'd like you to read it with me. It's a very short passage, obviously. One verse. Let's read it together. All you need to say, simply yes or no, anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So if you're a King James person, you know that let your yes be yes and your no be no. This simple teaching can actually be the way you evaluate your whole life. By what you say yes to, and how you say yes, and what you say no to, and how you say no. You can, you can give other words to it. For example, you can say, what do you give access to your life? Do you give the devil? Do you give lies access to your life? Do you give toxic people access to your life? Well, you're saying yes to that which will destroy you. And you're not saying no to that which will destroy you. Or you could say, well, what do you invest in? Because anything you're investing in, whether it's your time, your talents, your money, whatever it is, that is what you're saying yes to. And by not investing in something else, that's what you say no to. But let's take it to a, pers a more personal level. I often have people come in and they're complaining. And, they're, and, I, and I say, well, what are, you, what are you so upset about? Well, my boss or my wife or my husband or my family or so-and-so asked me if I would do this. And I said yes to them. Can you believe that they asked me to do this? And I'm like, well, you're the one who said yes. You see, that's a yes that means no. Because I'm complaining about having to say yes. I'm upset at saying yes. Some years ago, I, I began to realize that I was hurting my marriage by treating my wife like I treated my mother. I would say yes when she'd ask me something, but then I'd stall, hoping she'd forget. <laughs> or I would say, that's true, she never forgot. Or I would say yes, and it would create such pain for her, she would never ask me to do it again. Any man in here, that's how we treated our mothers. <laughs> and I started going, wait a minute, are you a man or a boy? Because little boys try to resist their mothers, but a man is responsible for his own choices. And you married this person and said you would love this person as, as Christ loved the church. And so suddenly I began to realize my yes was not even a yes with my wife. 
And I had to begin to say, if I'm going to say yes, it has to be yes. But here's the thing. You cannot say yes or no until you know your own heart. And your yes cannot be yes and your no cannot be no till your heart has been healed. Because people-pleasing heart will say yes when you, when you mean no. Dysfunctional, disordered hearts will say no when you should be saying yes. Because everything my wife was asking me to do really was just us partnering in being owners of a house, parents of children, people who lived. She wasn't asking for things that were not my responsibility. But I was so immature and undiscerning that she was the one having to point out my responsibilities. And I resented her for doing so. That is not the way you have an intimate relationship with somebody else. Well, guess what? The Lord put Lisa in my life as a laboratory for learning how to love him. Because, see, I was saying no to God when I should have been saying yes. And you begin to realize something. Many of us have either a yes to God that we don't fulfill, or we have a a wall up that says, no, I'm not going to do that. When you understand the gospel and you realize what Christ has done for you, your default setting to God should be yes. Paul had it uh, really clear. He said, I know that in all things, God works together for good for those who love him. You understand? That's a yes to God. You can't say, I love God and say no to God. Because you can't say, you're my Lord, but I'm going to say no to you, which means I'm your Lord. But you can't just say yes to God without examining why you want to say no. And then the yes becomes very real. You can't, I mean, there, Jesus tells a story of two, two sons who promised the, one promises the father he would come and work and never shows up. His yes was a No. And then the other son said no, but thought about it, counted the cost of it, and came and showed up, even though he showed up late. And, he, and Jesus says the second son was actually the dutiful son. See, it, it's not that God is, in a way, compelling your yes. He's inviting your yes. This is why Jesus says your yes has to be yes. You see, God always knows when your yes is no. And God also knows your no means no. Until you make a decision that it will be yes. Are you tracking with me in this? Because this is, in a way, you have to understand, this little concept reveals your whole life. Reveals what kind of person you are. Not just how discerning you are, but how trustworthy you are. If your yes is not yes, I can't trust you. If your no is not no, then I can't trust you. You're not a trustworthy person. If you're going to say yes to my face and go call somebody up and say, can you believe he asked me that? You're not really worthy of friendship. You're really dangerous. And it's why so many of us are failing in our work, why we're failing in our marriages, why we're failing in our friendships. And yet, that's what we need more than anything else, is to be intimate with one another. 
to be connected to one another, to depend on one another. As a matter of fact, what's happening as we go through these next few years, we're, we're all going to see life pressurized. And we are going to need each other like never before. But that means your yes has to be yes. And your no has to be no. Family, friendship, church, everything's going to be pressured. And what's going to happen is where there's integrity, there's trustworthiness. So let's, you're like, wow, you are, you are really heavy this morning, aren't you? Yeah, I had, I had a really big sweet roll, so... Uh, <laughs> I have sugar spirituality today. Come on, this is, it is important. I'm joking a little bit to take the pressure off a little. All right. So here's what we're saying. Let's go on this journey together of thinking. This, this morning might be more lecture than sermon, but please stay with me. Spiritual discernment is learning that yes must be yes and your no must be no. No is a confrontational word. It sets the boundary of what is you and what is not you. See, do you understand why that's so important? Because if you're, if you're in relationship with somebody, they want to know what is you. And they want to know what is not you. If you've never said no, they don't know where you end. Or if all you ever say is no, they don't know where you begin. And you can't have an intimate relationship with someone you do not know or that you cannot trust. So in this series, I have a number of resources, but one of them is a book called Boundaries by Dr. Henry Cloud and Dr. John Townsend. Now here, here's what I found. There's a problem when people read this book. And there's, there often is a problem, you know, when we talk about these things, because what happens is people in their undeveloped spiritual discernment start using the concepts of boundaries to self-protect, self-preserve, and in consequence, they start hurting other people. Now, the way that this happens is that because there's an unawareness of their own dysfunction, they start using the teaching on boundaries to reinforce their own abuse of their authority. Husbands can become more abusive. Wives can become more abusive. Teachers, leaders can become more abusive because they're just, they're thinking, it's okay. I'm being honest. I'm being real. Well, if your reactions are honest and real, but they're extreme, it means something's wrong with your yes and something's wrong with your no. And if your boundaries are basically a way of hurting other people, then they're not boundaries, they're walls or their weapons. What I've seen with a lot of people is they, they'll use this book, Boundaries, and they'll excuse horrible behavior and, and terrible attitudes, and they'll say, well, I'm just setting boundaries. No, you're not. You see, if you're an abuser, you will take teaching and use it to even be more powerful in your abuse. And it's, <laughs> All right, so this is my soapbox. A little bit. None of us handle power well. But the worst of us that handle power are those who felt at some time in our life like we were powerless. Because we felt like nobody listened to us, so now we yell louder. Nobody noticed us. We didn't matter to anybody, so now 
We've got to, even if we use negative attention, we've got to get people's attention. Or what happens with some is because of the, of the neglect or the abuse or whatever it is in their life, they use the power of withdrawal or the power of silence. Ever been in a discussion with somebody and you're kind of getting somewhere with them and they just walk away and storm out? That is powerful. You see, they haven't said anything. But they've withdrawn, and sometimes the withdrawing person is more controlling than the yelling person. But I wouldn't aspire to be either. Because in both cases, you still don't have yes being yes and no being no. You have dysfunction. You understand, Jesus is saying, when he talks about people whose words have that much significance coming out of their inner integrity that you can trust such a person. If all you do is withdraw when it gets tough, I can't trust you. If all you do is yell at me when we disagree, I can't trust you. You don't have boundaries, you have bullets. Come on, you gotta hear me in this. We have this tendency of not looking and being aware of how damaged we really are. And out of our damage, trying to put up boundaries is often very, very dangerous. So think through this with me. As we are working towards spiritual maturity, we're working towards spiritual discernment. So here's the thing. If you're going to confront somebody, even somebody that's hurting you, if you're going to confront them with the truth, the Bible says it has to be with love for that person. If you're confronting someone just out of the courage that comes from anger, then you're just as sinful as what they've done to you. That's hard to imagine, right? Because the Lord looks at the heart, not just the actions. Now, I'm not talking about sexual abuse. I'm not talking about, you know, violence or anything else. But I'm saying if all you ever do is respond to people out of your own self-protection, then what you've done is you've not allowed your true life, your true self to be protected by the grace and the power and the presence of the Lord. See, what happens is when we become self-preservatives, self-protective people, then we even wall off the Lord to us. We protect ourselves with our own words, with our own actions. And, we, we, and, and the truth is we're terrible at this and we're cutting ourselves off from the real source of life and the one who can protect you from the inside out. So if, we speak, if you speak truth without love, what you're saying is not true. And if you love without truth, it's not love. And so you understand long before anybody wrote anything about codependency and enabling people, and all, all of this kind of stuff, the Bible is teaching on this from the beginning. It says it in these simple ways. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Let what you speak of truth be truth with love. And, and, and if you're honest, you realize, man, sometimes all I want to do is empty my gun on this person. And I'm not talking about a literal gun. I'm saying all the hurt, all the pain. I just want, I want to unload on them what they've done to me. And you see, in those moments, what you're doing is you're saying, the gospel doesn't matter to me. 
There are some people who deserve my wrath. And when you go there, you go, but do I want to be in that same position? In a way, look at it with me. Do you want to stand before God and have all your sins have to be basically paid for by you? Or do you want grace where Jesus paid for your sins? Then if you're going to deal with people, you're going to have to deal with them the way God deals with you. If you're going to judge and punish them and bring all your wrath on them, then guess what? You get to stand before God and do the same. Let me tell you, what you've got is a debt of $10 from your friends. What you have before God is a debt of $10 billion. I, don't, I mean, if any of you can pay that debt, would you build us a bigger building, please? <laughs> Are you understanding what I'm saying? Yes. See, what happens, and this is why, and see, this is why that yes, yet, be yes, no, be no is so important, is that when you're raining down on somebody and you say, I'm just being honest, I'm just telling the truth, can you stand that kind of honesty before God without the advocate of the Lord Jesus Christ? This is also why, come on friends, this is why how did racism get so systematized in the church in America? How can I be a person who only stands before God as an abject sinner worthy of his destructive wrath and yet said, but at least I'm a white person. How could that ever even happen to people who understand the gospel? If I am dealt with by grace without regard to my, my gender or my race or my culture or my socioeconomic status, how can I look at someone else and say, you're even more undeserving than me? None of us are deserving. I'm not going to God and say, oh, God, thank you, I'm so white. No, I go to God and say, I'm spiritually bankrupt. I'm spiritually broken. I'm destitute apart from Christ. Then walk away from that and go, well, at least I'm not this person. Because if I get up from, from grace and move towards anybody else with anything but grace, then you see my yes is not yes. My yes is, to God is a lie. I've said yes to his grace, but I'm saying no to everybody else having grace but me or people who are just like me. You know, sometimes when I'm sharing these things, the emotion of it gets really deep with me. And my words actually can't keep up with my heart right now. Do you understand how badly we failed? And it may not be you personally, or it might not be me personally, but as a corporate group in America, we have failed. And it's why it's so important to me that you process with me going from spiritual blindness to spiritual sightedness. The other thing, let's take it one other way. In the same way, I can't look at anyone else feeling superior to them. Because it's all of grace, I don't ever have to look at anyone and feel inferior to them. If you were to come up to me and say, 
I am much more righteous than you. Do you know what my answer would be? You bet. You win. But if that's the basis of your life, you're going to hell. Because of your ideas, I'm more righteous than Mike, you're in trouble. It's only when you go, I'm as sinful as Mike. It's only when you go, I'm as loved as Mike. I'm as, I'm as under grace as Mike. Then you got something. But if you come and say, man, I'm so much more righteous than the pastor of Risen King Church, you, you wouldn't believe all the names I've been called. When you say that, you're, you're showing you don't get the gospel. Because if you have justification by comparison to me or anybody else, you don't have justification. Are you tracking with me in this? So what do we have to do then, friends? Part of it is this. Attention has to be paid to understanding the stuff that's going on in your own heart. Your emotions are key to diagnosing your spiritual integrity and your spiritual discernment. We cannot heal our broken self. We can't deal wisely and well with the brokenness of others until we ourselves have an acute consciousness of the healing presence of Christ in your life. In a way, there's been some confusion at times about what is it to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, it can be certainly a consequence of the filling is that you can have tremendous emotions, and we'll talk about that. But the primary thing, and what releases all the gifts of the Spirit, and what releases all the power of the Spirit, is when you begin to tune in and have an acute consciousness of the Spirit's presence in your life. And the number one thing that the Spirit is doing is conforming you to the image of Christ, which means He's healing all the broken places that you will let Him heal. In the end, the one who is responsible for what you believe is you. The responsibility of what you will reveal is yours. The responsibility then of presenting yourself to be healed is yours. But if you are a believer, the spirit of healing is in your very, like within the walls of your personhood at all times. That's why the scripture says, keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit, is that you have to have this acute consciousness of his healing presence. So I want to I be psychological for a little bit. Now, I look around the room, and I really do know that some of you could be described as stubborn. <laughs> laughter kind of gives you away. <laughs> or no laughter gives you away as well. And I know, and you, you, you know, I'm always surprised you guys come back, but, but I know how damaged you are. Because I know how damaged I am. You cannot go through this world and not get damaged. And the worst people who think their damage is okay. Because then they'll take their power and use their damage to damage others. And the problem is somehow those people become governors. <laughs> leaders. Ministers. People with power. But when you come to Christ, your identity is not, I'm a stubborn person. Your identity is not, I'm a damaged person. 
Though those may be characteristics that you have carried, that is not who you are, and that's not the foundation of your identity. Larry Crabb helped me understand this. He was a great Christian psychologist who passed away recently. He said this, At the exact center of the human personality is a capacity to give and to receive in relationship. A capacity or possibility that defines what it means to be alive as a human being. When that capacity is corrupted, when rather than giving who we are and receiving others for who they are, we use others to gain what we think we need and to protect ourselves from the harm that others can inflict on us, then we are dead. We are subhuman. Now here, this is a powerful, this is a powerful quote. You have capacity, but most of us through our damage have limited our capacity. What is the Holy Spirit doing? He's trying to increase your capacity. He's trying to empty out what keeps you from being capable and to fill you with what will make you capable to be the best human being you could ever be. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to point at your neighbor, your friend, someone you can tolerate. Your stubborn, damaged neighbor. And I want you to say this to them. You have the capacity at the center of your personality to give and to receive. It's not, it's not complicated, is it? But you know what? There's some of you can only give and cannot receive. And there's some of you only receive, we call them takers. And cannot give. But you see, if you can see one side of that equation in you, it means both sides are there. They're just not been released yet. So when we do not operate in that capacity, Larry Crabb says, we give evidence that we've fallen to a level lower than our intended humanity. Either we can live as unique members of a connected community experiencing the fruit of Christ's life within us, Or we can live as terrified, demanding, self-absorbed individuals determined to get what we need at any cost. Man, I cannot tell you how many people live as terrified, demanding, self-absorbed individuals and have no clue that that's what they're doing. And everybody around them is hurt. Anybody that loves them is hurt by that. Because Crab's right. It's not operating on a human level. It's operating on a subhuman level. It's not operating in life. It's operating in death. So what does God do with our brokenness, with our stubbornness, with our damage? The first thing is that God himself is a person. He created you in his image. So therefore, you're a person. So he doesn't fix you like you're some machine. But not only doesn't he fix you, but you will see something. If you walk with God for a while, he doesn't pressure you. Now, does life pressure you? Yes. Do people pressure you? Yes. But that's not God. And so this is part of discernment is to realize what God's doing, not just what other people are doing. 
I, I, I find it very powerful to step away from needing to please people. You see, if I speak the truth in love, then the results of that truth in love is no longer up to me. I'm responsible to speak the truth in love, but I'm not responsible for their reaction. And so what happens is we have got to detach in some ways from thinking people will heal us. People will pressure us. I grew up in a church that pressured you to fit into a Christian template. A Christian doesn't do this. A Christian doesn't think like that. A Christian doesn't do that. And everything was this, this whole pressure to be conformed to the rules. Here's the interesting thing. If people give you rules, you can conform to them and never have a change of heart. If you're being drawn near to Christ, it's not about rules. It starts being about all the brokenness. It gets messier. Risen King Church for 17 years has been the messiest church I've ever been a part of. Because you can't have healing without messiness. You can't deal with the damage without unmasking the brokenness. Is it hard to do that? Yes. Yes. But to do less is to not put yourself in the healing path or healing pattern of our God. Listen, what, here's what he does. He reveals himself to us. And there's three ways that he reveals himself to us. This takes faith. But right now, right now in your heart, there is a smile of God on you. And you're like, yeah, but Mike, you don't know what I did last night or last week. Hey, friends, Jesus knew exactly what you were going to do, and he took it exactly to the cross. And from the moment the darkness descended to the moment he said the debt is paid, Jesus paid an eternal debt for you in hell. He who knew no sin became sin so that you could become the righteousness of God. Here's what I've learned about healing. Is one, at some point, somebody's got to validate to you that you are broken and that the brokenness matters whether you're angry, you're depressed, or you're anxious, at some point you can't just be flapping in the wind and, 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 and feel like you're going to get healed. My mom, my mom had a hard time convincing people she was sick. And so um, she finally found a doctor that found the cancer she had. She had a very, uh, she had a very uh, abnormal form of cancer. And I said... I said, Mom, how are you feeling? He said, finally somebody, finally somebody says I am sick. I've been saying I'm sick for years. Finally, someone agrees with me. And she put a smile on her face. I'm like, you have a cancer that's going to kill you. But she's like, but it, finally I've been validated. Do you understand as a human being, if you keep thinking you're crazy, you will go crazy. But you don't just need to be validated, you need comfort. You need somebody that will enter into your damage, into your pain. You know, this is why Jesus is so important. Jesus could touch a leper, and the leper became clean. 
Whereas any priest touching a leper, the priest would become unclean. We have to have Jesus in our world touching our brokenness, our damage, because his healing will become our healing. His wholeness will become our wholeness. But you see, you have to begin to realize that Jesus has this happy to see you face at all times. And you, you and I, we tend, to, we, we tend to not listen to what God is saying. God loves to reveal to you the good he's producing in you. I, I don't know how many cultures are represented in here that always focus on the negative, but mine did. My family, as soon as something good happens, they say, don't get too excited. You know, the, the, shoe's gonna, the other shoe's going to drop. I still don't know what shoes those are. <laughs> but there's always this little thing in the back of my head when I get happy, like, don't get too happy. But here's the thing in the gospel. You can't get too happy when you realize that God wants to reveal the good in you to encourage you. To show you're not where you were and you're on the way to where you will be. See, even when the bad shows up, God stays calm. Even when you're at your worst, he's calm. He always knows that there's goodness underneath that he's put in you. And he's actually bringing the badness to the sur surface. He intentionally brings up the bad and the painful. He exposes what we are convinced will make him turn away in disgust in order to amaze us with his grace. Are you tracking with me a little bit in this? So why is it so hard sometimes to see this healing pattern? And why is it that you need this being filled with the Holy Spirit over and over again? Well, part of it is because God's presence is very subtle. Would you say that with me? Subtle? The reason is God has to cloak his grandeur for your protection. If you were to see him in the fullness of his glory, you would die. So what happens is God cloaks or veils his grandeur in such a way that you only begin to sense him as you turn your heart to him. And when you turn your heart really to him, and I'm saying, again, you're turning away from other people healing you. You're turning away from blaming others. And you're turning and saying, God, I, I'm broken, but I'm coming to you for healing. When that happens and you start to be aware of his divine love for you. And can I just, it, it's a very simple thing. His divine love is that sense that, that he has a smile for you. That he has a happy to see you posture with you. Have you ever had somebody in your life that they, you just always knew they were happy to see you no matter what? You don't, you don't, you don't resist going to see them. You run to them. Have you ever had a person that you knew they were going to scold you every time they saw, you saw them? I, I just love mothers who first thing when their children call is, I, well, it's about time you call. I'm like, wow, that's a great psychological trick to get them to call over and over again, right? They just can't wait for more scolding. We are stupid people sometimes. What we really want, we actually repel. 
But you see, in every heart, there's this need to have somebody who's always happy to see you. The gospel says that no matter what you've done, God has a happy to see you welcome for you. And until you get that, you will always kind of keep God at arm's length. Now, there are other people not happy to see you, and there are are people who are happy to see you, but God is eternally happy to see you. Why do I know that? Because that's the definition of unconditional love. Unconditional love means there's no condition in which he wouldn't be happy to see you. Sometimes I have a gift for the obvious. Are you tracking with me in this? When you really know that, when you begin to experience it, you get a peace that is so deep and a well-being. Here's, here's the idea. As you attend to your inner life, you can begin to have an awareness of God's presence, his healing presence. And then his love will give you a sense of love for others. In other words, he has to release you from self-centeredness and self-absorption so you actually have space to love others without it being about you. It is amazing to me how many narcissistic people there are, that they can make somebody else's problems all about them. You start saying something about what's going on in your life, well, you know, that's nothing compared to me, you know, kind of a thing. You're like, I'm not talking to you again. But what happens when when you are, when you're being healed by the healing presence of God, you get a heightened sense of compassion or a keener awareness of the connectedness that exists between you and other people. This gives you a sense of vitality. If you're, in a way, if you're lacking spiritual or emotional vitality, it's, it's because you haven't turned towards the, uh, the very presence of God. So the, the name of this kind of turning towards God and living in this sense of his presence that I, I like using, was, was originated by, by St. Ignatius. He was a very powerful writer on spiritual discernment. And he actually developed these spiritual practices to increase your spiritual discernment. But he began, this, this definition helped me, and so I wanted to share it with you. He calls this sense of God's presence, his healing presence, you actually sensing it, he calls it consolation. Can you say that with me? So he says, consolation are the feelings that you begin to experience as gifts of God's gracious presence. If you've never had the gift of God's gracious presence, we're not talking about his omnipresence, we're talking about his relational presence with you. It is yours if you're a believer, it's yours to have. But what what, what Ignatius talked about, he said, it's the way our souls light up when we turn toward God. And we find ourselves aligned in our depths with ultimate reality. It is the coming alive that we experience when we are in the presence of grace and truth. It assures us that all is well because we are held in the arms of everlasting love. Do you notice the difference here? Everything could be in chaos outside. But because you're in that sense of his divine presence, You have consolation that you are being embraced by his everlasting arms and nothing can touch you that he will not defend you. You see, 
it calls us to get outside of ourselves and beyond ourselves to serve others then in this place of love with creativity and, and passion. Let me put it this way. If you ever try to save a drowning person and you're just swimming and you're trying to save them, they will bring you under. The best way to save a drowning person is to be in a boat where you are safe and secure and give them a life preserver. You know, and so the idea here is that we keep trying to save each other while we're all drowning. And then we wonder, well, why am I sinking? Well, because all the people around you that you're looking to save, you are drowning just like you are. But this idea of consolation is now I'm in a place of peace. I'm in a place of security. So now because I am in this place of such stability in Christ, I can actually bring him as the life preserver and help you out of your drowning state. But otherwise, what I'm doing is I'm just helping you drown while I drown. See, none of us in this room can heal anybody. None of us in this room can save anybody. If you have a savior complex or you feel like you're responsible for others, you have a savior complex. And the issue is you can't save anybody because you're yourself so damaged and stubborn. People, people who especially are only prone to give, you know why they give? Because they can control what they give, which is an example of control, not love. And most people who only give usually give with strings attached. Because you, you see later, if you don't like what they give, how mad they get. <laughs> like, you've gone away from preaching and to meddling now, Mike. <laughs> so, I know, I'm, I'm going to run over a little bit, okay? Here's the thing. Once you begin to be aware of those deep feelings of the presence of God that we're calling consolation, when your face is turned toward God, you also start to be aware of a corresponding experience, but it's opposite. And instead of consolation, many believers are living in desolation. Now, what desolation means, these are the feelings that you'll notice if you attend to what happens in your inner life. These are the feelings that come when you have turned away from God and you've turned either to your job, your family, your health, whatever it might be, your own pleasure, and you've become the broker of your own needs. When that happens, you'll notice you're becoming more self-occupied and preoccupied. You become more negative. You become more drained of energy. And usually there's a mild depression and irritability that follows. You see, you cannot, if you're a believer, you can't just get rid of the Holy Spirit, but you can live with a grieving Holy Spirit inside of you. So here's the thing. You might be running off and say, I'm going to be sexually immoral. I don't care what God says. And the Spirit's weeping in your heart. I'm going to lie. I'm going to cheat. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get ahead. And the Holy Spirit's just weeping in your heart. Because there is nothing sadder than a disobedient Christian. Because on the one hand, they're like, I'm going to do my thing. And the Spirit's like, I weep over you. I grieve over you. What you could be, what you could have, but you won't listen to me. This is what Ignatius called desolation. So the question becomes, as you turn away from God, are you aware of it? Because what happens is 
the borders of your life get smaller and smaller and you shrivel up and you, you, your, whole, your whole soul starts to shudder because the Spirit is not going to stay passive while you're rebelling, while you're being independent. And it actually puts you into, it could be in your marriage, could be in your job, could be in your, just your personal vitality. It puts you in a spiral of death. All right, I got to finish quick here. I just want this one. This guy is such a great writer. I'd like you to hear. Are, are you at least tracking with me in this? Okay, so can you say this with me? Consolation. Consolation. That's that deep sense of the presence of God. Let's say the other one. Desolation. Desolation. Now, whether you sense it or not, it means you've turned your face away from God. You could still be doing all the rules, but you've turned away from God. That's the desolation. What were you made for? You were made for consolation. You are less you when you're living in desolation. So here's what Benner says. He's such an excellent writer on this. He says, my most telltale sign of desolation is usually a low level sense of anxiety. As I have come to understand the spiritual significance of these feelings of unease. Please do not ignore any feelings of unease. That's the Spirit stirring in you, challenging you. He says, I have learned to view them as a signal that I have turned my face from God to myself. My apprehension about an important upcoming meeting lets me see that having done what I could to prepare, I'm choosing to take responsibility for the outcome of something over which I have no control. Turning toward God, I then gently place that meeting in His hands, and surrender my much-loved posture of control and responsibility. Similarly, the distress I feel when someone I respect is critical of something I've written is a signal that I love my glittering image of myself more than I love God. It calls me to turn to God, realign my heart with God's heart. Sometimes feelings of desolation are an indication that there is something in the experience, person, or choice I am facing that does not hold life for me. That's the yes be yes, the no be no. Desolation at these times is a divine nudge towards awareness that, is, that there is something not right for me and what I'm considering, at least not right for me at the present moment. At other times, feelings of desolation are an indication that something I love more than God has displaced God from the center of my heart. Desolation is, in this situation, a sign of a disordered desire, sometimes called disordered attachment. St. Augustine said it this way, sin is disordered loves in a disordered heart. And when, when you are desolate, God is still in your life, but he's not ultimate. And any time that God ceases to be ultimate, it means you have become ultimate. And whenever that happens... You have to recognize it and start turning back towards his face. Can I just say this? The Holy Spirit is here this morning in a powerful way. He's actually, this is weird. Sometimes it's, I'm a weirdo, okay? But there are spotlights on some of your heads right now. And he's, he's prodding you saying, you are the stubborn one I'm talking to. He's prodding you and saying, you're the one whose yes is not yes. Your no is not no. He's prodding you and he's saying to you, you're the controlling one. 
You probably don't like it about yourself, but it's true of yourself. You're the one who was powerless as a child and is now using your power in dangerous ways and you're hurting your relationships, you're hurting your family. You might be getting your way, but everybody's getting out of your way. And the Lord is saying today, I am in your life to bring healing. Here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to hate yourself. That won't help. You may be stubborn and damaged, but you're primarily not that. You are broken, but you are beautiful. And you are beloved. And it's only when you begin to say, I can gently put my brokenness into the hand of my wounded Jesus and make him responsible for the outcomes. It won't be easy and sometimes you'll yank it back, but you got to put it in his hands. Will you stand with me as we close in prayer? love that picture of someone who's excited to see you. I used to uh, nanny for this family when I was in college and I had to pick them up from preschool and I would come and I would get to the preschool and you could hear them from down the hall looking out the window and they'd go, Ashley's here, Ashley's here, Ashley's here. And their, their mom was like, you know, they never do that for me when I pick them up. But friends, that's the picture that I have this morning. The father is looking and he's going, you're here, you're here, you're here. And he's so excited to see you. And so I don't know if there's a place in your life where there's a relationship in your life where you've had somebody just so excited to see you. But would you just get that earthly picture in your head this morning? Because if you can get that earthly picture in your head, then it will help you to know the truth that your father is doing the same thing. And that these places that are broken in our lives, He is redeeming and He is calling them beautiful. And He wants you to know this morning that you are so deeply and dearly loved. And He's not pressing on these places to hurt you. He's not pressing on these places to harm you. But He's pressing on these places because He wants you to know how loved you are. So that your yes can be yes and your no can be no. And you can live the life that you were designed for. So would you pray with me this morning? Father, I thank you that we are so deeply and dearly loved by you. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I know too much about myself to get that. But Lord, I receive it this morning. Friends, if you feel comfortable, would you just open up your hands to receive the love of the Father? It's not something that you earn or work for. It's something that you receive. And so in the name of Jesus, I just pray a, a fresh outpouring of the love of the Father.